0: Well, this is session six of our Marriage 101 workshop, as you know. And I trust that these times have been encouraging for you and that they've been energizing and challenging for you as you think about God's design for marriage for husbands and for wives. Uh, you know a little bit of where we've been. We've talked about the crises we're facing in marriage. And then we sort of gave a biblical framework for why we have that crisis and what's happened, what went wrong talked about God's design, obviously, from the very beginning, His perfect and beautiful design. And then, obviously, what went wrong in the fall and the result of the fall. And then we talked about the hope of the gospel. That in the gospel, obviously, God is not just restoring people personally to Himself, but He's also about restoring and reconciling broken marriages in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's in the business of restoring marriages. So there's always hope for our marriages, right? Whether you are experiencing a great season of victory in your marriage right now, or whether you're experiencing challenges in your marriage. There's the hope of the gospel, and God is about renewing and restoring everything in the light of the redemption of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So I hope that you keep that hope in mind. But we, obviously, we need to return we, alongside along the lines of that hope. We need to return to His design, right? There's a responsibility incumbent on us to be people who flesh out uh, His Responsibilities that He's given us as husbands and wives so that our marriages might not just survive, but that our marriages may also thrive. So, we've been talking about that last week. If you remember, by way of review, husbands, we saw, we looked at the role of the gospel transformed husband and the responsibilities that we have as men. And so, by way of review, we saw that um, biblical masculinity is functional. What do we mean by that? That it's not just enough that God made you a man, right? Uh, with your physically masculine, but also that our masculinity is to be functional. We need to flesh out our role and responsibilities in the context of our home life and in society and in the church as well. And so, God has called men to be leaders. Okay, we need to flesh that out. We need to be leaders who initiate, who obviously set the trajectory for our families. It's not up to your wife primarily to be the one who sets the trajectory for your marriage and for direction and for the future of your family life and all of that. It's not first and foremost your wife's responsibility to be the spiritual leader of your home, right? The buck stops with us as men. We need to set the trajectory of the spiritual walk of our family as well. We can't control hearts within our home. We understand that. But we also need to be the ones setting the pace, right? The buck stops with us as spiritual leaders. Also, we talked about the fact that Um, Our God-given delegated authority as leaders should not be abused, right? We should not be men who are domineering, dictatorial when we fail in that area, and we all have and will. We need to be men who also are confessional type of men, right, who seek God's forgiveness in that area, and obviously the forgiveness of our sweet wives and then of our kids were appropriate. And so we need to be men who operate as lovers of our families, right? The motivation for our leadership, is love right we need to be men who use our authority to love our families for the benefit of our families and then thirdly we talked about the fact that husbands gospel transformed husbands are learners that the greatest subject matter after god for each of us as men are our wives right we need to be students of our sweet wives and that requires men time that requires involvement That requires participation. That requires that when we're home, we're home, right? And that is a battle. Can I get an amen? Right? To not bring work home, right? To be looking at your wife's eyes over dinner or over coffee together or whatever, over tea, and not to be thinking about your other responsibilities that you have. She needs to be the focus. That when we look into her eyes, that we are actually not distracted. And I don't know about you, but that's a major struggle area for me as a man. I'm often, I'm the guy with a thousand windows open in my head. You know what I mean? At all times. So I got to repent of that. And I have men around me who keep me accountable to that. Hey, make sure that you are over the years. This has been the case. So make sure that you are um, studying your wife, cultivating a relationship with her. So all that to say with great privilege, men comes great responsibility. One day just recognize that we are going to give an account to the Lord for our biblical headship. Right? We'll talk about headship a little bit and we'll be reminded of that in a bit. But we're going to be accountable to the Lord. The buck stops with us in terms of the way that we use our delegated, God-given delegated authority for the purpose of benefiting and blessing our families. Okay? Now we want to talk about gospel-transformed marriages with regards to the responsibilities of wives. Okay? So ladies... We're going to talk about, here's a little bit of a, of a synopsis of where we're headed. This is a snapshot. We're going to hang our thoughts on these three headings. Gospel transformed wives are followers of their husbands. Gospel transformed wives are helpmates or helpers of their husbands. Gospel transformed wives are lovers of their husbands and of their families, right? So when we talk about the wife as a follower, what are we talking about? Well, this God-given responsibility of following your husband is really derived from the principle that that is emphasized and commanded in Scripture for all Christians, but also very particularly within the context of the marriage to wives of submission. Okay, submission. I know that that's a bad word in our culture today. I get it. Okay, because of all the abuses of authority and all of that. And so, you know, um, submission is not something that is... Popular in our culture today, but we're not about what's popular in our culture, right? And just because people distort and twist and sin in different areas in their, in their the uh, expression of their God-given responsibilities and don't submit to the Lord Jesus first in how they carry these things out, we're not going to budge from from preaching and getting clarity and being recalibrated in terms of what our responsibilities are, uh, fleshing out a beneficial authority and, ladies, of you being a wife who is submissive in the context of your marriage and in the context of your home life. So there are multiple passages there that we derive this principle of submission from. The early chapters of Genesis, I don't want to get into all the, the implications of those statements. Genesis 2.18, right? And 20. Chapter 3. All there are There are statements made there to Adam, to Eve, and then to Adam again post the fall that imply the divine order. Right? Even think about... God's words to Adam in Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 of because you have listened to the voice of your wife and we remember we said that that's, that doesn't mean man that we shouldn't listen to the voice of our wives that means in context that that Adam elevated the voice of Eve right sinfully above God's commandments and he abdicated his role as what as head of the of that family right and she on the other hand it says when, when God speaks to her in chapter 3, verse 16, your desire is going to be for your husband. And we looked at this a couple of sessions ago that that really has the idea of you're going to want to get control. You're going to always want to grab the, the steering wheel, so to speak. There's going to be this battle, right? This ongoing conflict between husband and wife within the context of the home. So that principle of submission is implied there, right? That the wife is to follow her husband, And then Ephesians 5.22, we'll look at that later. Colossians 3, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3. All of those texts are commandments. It's a command. Exhortations to wives to be submissive to their husbands. Okay, so ladies, in love. If you want to argue this point, argue the point with God, right? I'm just simply the instrument delivering this to you, right? The spokesperson for the Lord. This is a command of God. Even with the distortion and the abuse of men which is wrong and sinful, and we're going to talk about even limits of submission, okay? We'll talk about these things. First Corinthians 11.3 is especially pertinent, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Look at that. And the man is the head of a woman. Remember that term, head, to husbands? Translates the Greek word. We saw this last week, kephale. It's the idea of authority or headship. So now when people say, hey, what's up with that chauvinistic concept of, of biblical headship? Where did you guys get that from the Bible? You can show them, right? There's biblical headship. And that, re, that means, a, that has a, the idea of authority. That as men, we have this delegated authority. There's only one who has inherent, supreme, absolute authority and fleshes out that authority perfectly. His name is Jesus, right? But we as men, it's a delegated authority for a particular purpose, which is for the benefit and the blessing of our wives and kids. When we go outside of the bounds of that, we have problems and there's repentance that needs to be happen, right? Wives, submission. The Greek word translated, be subject, is the Greek word hupotasso. It's a compound word, which means to arrange oneself under. Tasso has the idea of arranging oneself, lining up, and hupo is the idea of under. To arrange oneself under someone else's leadership or headship. And so what is the timeless principle? God's beautiful design for maximum impact is that of loving headship for husbands and that of loving submission for wives. And these are to characterize the gospel transformed marriage. Okay? Very, very, very key. Now, I want to make this statement before we move on to the importance of submission here. But realize that the call of submission is really a twofold sobering call and exhortation, not only to wives, but also to husbands. First and foremost, if we're going to flesh this out, who do we need to be submitted to? Christ, right? We subject ourselves to... If you, in fleshing out your authority, man, your God-given, delegated authority for the good of the, your family, if you're going to flesh that out in a way that honors the Lord, and Jesus isn't boss of your life, with a big B, then you're going to have a hard time fleshing out authority, and not, whether in a passive way or in a dictatorial, domineering kind of way, Right? Only Christ is perfect. We need to look to Him. Ladies, the same thing for you. If you're going to flesh out submission and lovingly, joyfully, voluntarily arrange yourself under your husband. Why? Because he's worthy? Because he deserves it? Because he's always going to be the greatest guy and he's not going to be a stinker sometimes? No. Because of the fact that your boss is who? Jesus. Christ is your boss, right? You know, right off the bat, one helpful thing I think men to ask your wives is this. Honey, and don't do this with, when the kids are running around all over the place and she's stressed out and you just got home and you throw in, pop out with this this crazy question, right? But when there's calm, maybe you're out on a date together, and you say, honey, and you've checked your heart and you prayed before the Lord, right, and you examined. You ask her, honey, what makes it hard sometimes for you to follow and submit to me? And then just be quiet. Like, really, men, be quiet, right? Can I emphasize that enough? What did Paul do? Beware, beware, beware. Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, okay? Be silent, listen, and let's see what she has to say. And ladies, don't use that as an opportunity now, right, to blast off, right? Start taking shots at your husband. If he's had the humility and he's examining himself before the Lord prayerfully and God' dependence to ask you that, don't blast off and start, well, this and this and this, 150 things, right? Like, hey, here are a couple of, of things, honey. And I know that, you know, as wives, you want to give the benefit of the doubt. First Corinthians 13 says that love believes all things. So oftentimes it's helpful. I've told wives, hey, and let them know, honey, I know that some of these things are not ill-intentioned. I didn't say that you meant to do this. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying, and implying that you have evil intentions. And when you do this, but this is something that comes across. And this is what, what I struggle sometimes, why sometimes it's hard to follow your lead. Try it sometime. Okay. Some of you maybe have already done that in different ways where you have those conversations. But that's a great question right off the bat, as far as even this issue of facilitating our wives' submission, right? All right, let's talk about the importance of submission. The importance of submission. Okay, and there's a lot to cover today, so hopefully it isn't too fast for you. The importance of submission. Why is submission important? Because Christ's glory is at stake. Think about this it's not about you, wife, it's not about you, husbands, even in the exercise of your authority. It's about the glory of Christ. The goal of marriage and the goal of our interactions and the goal of fleshing out these roles is not in and of itself our personal happiness. Because we're fallen creatures, we're going to define happiness very different ways, right? Is God against our happiness? What do you think? Does God want you to have a miserable marriage? Of course not. But it's not happiness as you define it. It's how he defines it in his word, right? But the ultimate goal is the glory of Christ. And if, if that's your goal, the glory of Christ, even in your submission, ladies, then it's going to have implications for when your husband doesn't respond well to you, when he's not living the way that he should, right? Um, you're going to be focused on the glory of Christ. We'll talk about this a little bit more later. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Verse thirty-two. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The ultimate point of that passage is not the, 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 our human marriage. He says ultimately, this is a picture. This is Je- this is about Jesus and His church. Says the apostle, Paul. and your marriage represents something about Christ and the way that He relates to His church. And ladies, your marriage represents something about the church and how the church. Relates to her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that—huge, huge, right? And so, that authority-submission dynamic, God's beautiful design, is to picture, to mirror that relationship between the church to Christ, right? So think about this: marriage. Learn to begin to think about your role and your marriage this way. Marriage is Christ through you, men. Marriage is Christ through us, if it's a picture of Christ in his church, right? Ladies, your submission is Christ through you. Christ through you. And ultimately it's about how we represent Him, His glory, right? Christ's glory is at stake. We represent Christ to the world. So let me just ask you, what what picture or conception of Christ are you giving to others, to the watching eye around you? In your neighborhood? Right? Super critical and important men and ladies in the context of your home. What is the picture that you're giving to your children, young and older, about your marriage? What they say, hey, my parents have their issues and they have their seasons and all of that and struggles. They're sinners saved by grace. But, man, I've never seen a man more passionately in love with Jesus and more passionately in love with a woman than my dad with with my mom. Or ladies, ladies. I've never seen a woman who despite the fact that my dad is a stinker sometimes, right? And he sins and he's not always locked and loaded walking in, in, in holiness the way that he should. I know that my dad my mom loves my dad. She arranges herself under him short of him making her sin. He, she does everything she can to lovingly, joyfully in even her disposition from the heart arrange herself under him and follow him. Right? And support him. Super important. Um... The importance of submission is also for the purpose of upholding the truth, the glory of Christ, right? Representing Jesus and His church and also for upholding the truth. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 4 in the context. Whenever I put those little brackets for you, I'm just trying to keep the context in mind. Older women are being instructed here to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, Ready for this? Here's the purpose clause. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Doesn't even say so that their husbands will be happy. Right? So that the home won't be a mess. Right? So that the kids will not be running circles around her. It says so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Huge. Right? By the way, little side note of principle of discipleship here. Ladies, older ladies, older women. Right? I didn't say old. I said older. Older ladies, and, I <laughs> and and might I add this, older doesn't necessarily mean older in age, but there's something about maturity here, right? Older women, if you fall into that category, whatever that looks like, we can talk about what that looks like, and we will actually very soon when we walk through the book of Titus. But older women, your responsibility after your home life, older ladies, is to be coming alongside of younger women in the church, informally, formally, in whatever context, right? And be investing into them, teaching them what kinds of things? Encourage them to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, not out of control, right? Emotional wrecks, self-controlled, right? Pure, holy, workers at home, that their home would be their domain, right? That their home would be their domain, kind. This is not just, I want to be kind, but they're actually women who are known for their kindness in the context of their home. You need to be teaching the women that and modeling that, ladies, exemplifying that, right? In your example and in word, being subject to your own husbands, right? You model that by example, older women, and you teach the younger women, hey, make sure that you are arranging yourself under your hubby, okay? Follow his lead. What does that look like? Let's talk about it. What are the struggles? What are the limits? Let's talk about that. Investing yourself into the younger women of the church, right? Did you notice the content of investment, right? Love, love. Sensibility, self-control, um, that that's sensible uh, word there it really has the idea even of not only self-control, but rightly ordering their priorities. Older women need to come alongside of younger women who haven't lived, li- lived life long enough to help them rightly order their priorities. What is the main thing? Keeping the main things the main thing, right? Older ladies, you come alongside of them in that content, purity, workers at home, right? Right? Key, but the key here at the end of verse five is so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Okay? Notice the next the motivation of submission. The motivation of submission. Ephesians five twenty two. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And I put this in caps for you. As to the who. As to the who, ladies. As to the Lord, right? As to the Lord. Colossians 3.18, wise, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's what's right before the Lord, in other words, right? As you submit to Christ, as unto the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord, it's what's right before the Lord, is what he says. It's what's righteous before the Lord. It's all about the Lord. That's the motivation for your submission. This is so, so important, ladies, right? So, so important. Why? Because often your husband's won't deserve to be followed. Can I get an amen, brothers? You know what I'm saying? Amen. Man, I often like sit there, I'm like, oh, I can't believe that this poor woman has been called to follow me, you know? Because I often fail, I'm often weak. Can you identify with that, brothers? Yeah. Ladies, it says unto the Lord, especially in those times, right? Ultimately, you're doing this for Him. And don't be telling your husband, well, it's as unto the Lord, so I don't even, I'm, I don't even, it's not even for you. I want you to know that. I'll follow you, but it's not for you, right? <laughs> I take it that the laughs are because you've done that before, maybe thought it, right? So that's comforting to me, right? Well, I can tell you that in counseling, that's often been the motivation. It's like, yeah, it's as unto the Lord, Pastor. Thank you for that reminder, you know? She like sticks her tongue out at the husband, right? Figuratively speaking, and sometimes literally speaking. It says, unto the Lord, right? So the idea there, ladies, is not throw it at your husband's face. It says, unto the Lord, and then do it from the heart, right? It's at a heart of worship, so then he blows it. When he doesn't reciprocate, when he acts sinfully, right? When he's not steadfast in his role before the Lord, you still flesh out your role. Ultimately, you want to be faithful, right, for the glory of Christ. So... um, What is submission? Okay, because there's a lot of confusion and a lot of pushback, obviously, of the definition of submission. So let's talk about what submission is, and then we're going to talk about what submission is not. Okay? What submission is? And this is an examination, a brief one, albeit. So sometime um, I want to preach on this on a Sunday morning, but this is a quick examination of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Submission is a powerful witness. Ladies, again, seeing the big picture, right? Put on your gospel lenses. The big picture with clarity is that this is a powerful witness. When women in the world who are either reacting to abuse in their own lives growing up and they hate authority, right? And they become even feminists, right? Not justifying that, but some women do go that direction because of abuses of authority, right? Or when women in the, in the world um, are distorting authority Authority and biblical submission, ladies, you can be a powerful witness of God's kind of submission. Right? Look at First Peter chapter three verse one. In the same way, and the context there is submission. Read it, First Peter. It's all about submission, and it, and it, the pinnacle in chapter two of, of uh, First of, uh, Peter, leading into this exhortation to wives, is Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus. It says He did not utter threats. He did not revile in return. While suffering threats, he didn't respond that way himself, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Remember that passage? First Peter chapter 2. And then he says, in the same way. Context. This is just exegesis, right? Exegesis is drawing out from Scripture, right? Principles and implications. Again, you want to argue with someone, argue with the Word of God, right? In context, it's Christ. You wives, be submissive. Arrange yourself under your own husbands. And underline that own. There is a general submission that we should all have towards each other, even in the context of the church, and a submission towards your leaders even, right? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. But there's a particular submission unto your own husbands. A very particular submission where you follow his lead. Okay? So that, purpose clause, even if any of them are disobedient to the word. What is that all about? Well, the two primary views about of disobedience to the Word, are either... This is a professing Christian husband who professes Christ, and there's evidence in his life that he is a believer, right? It's one thing to profess Jesus. It's quite another thing to actually be a Christian. I'm going to preach on this second service if you weren't in first service. So it could either be a professing Christian husband who professes faith, who is being disobedient to the Word, right? there's a season of his life, pattern of... uh, um, some difficulties come up. He's being disobedient, not walking in by the Spirit, etc. Or the other view is that he is a nonbeliever. Okay? So there's an extreme case, and then there's a, another case. Which one is it? Right? There's arguments on both sides that are very key. I think that this is speaking about one who is a nonbeliever. Okay? But it's debatable. Okay? We'll, we'll tell you everything the text says and nothing more and I'll always give you two views if they are compelling views. There's argument on both sides. I think it's speaking about a um, non-believing husband because oftentimes when disobedience to the word is used like this, it's speaking of someone who's not a believer. They're not submitting themselves to God's word and specifically even the gospel message, okay? Either case, he says, whether it's it's the professing Christian who is, Christian husband who is walking in disobedience or the non-believing husband says, you... Make sure that you be submissive, right? And there are parameters. We'll talk about that in a bit. So that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Oh, this is so hard, right, ladies? Tough stuff. And how many of us haven't sat in rooms in counseling sessions with women who are in very difficult situations? And we've had to work through some of these texts, right? And even First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, in this age of where everything is abuse... Okay, everything is abuse. Is there abuse? Yes. But everything is abuse. This passage has been thrown out the window so that people don't want to go here anymore in conservative churches, even because this rubs people the wrong way. Right. And their mind always goes to abuse, physical abuse. Well, What about physical abuse? What about physical abuse? We get it, don't we? We see a lot of that in our in our contexts. But just be careful. This is God's word. This is not even Peter talking in and of himself. The, the God inspired Peter to write down the exact words in First Peter chapter three, verses one through six, right? And so says, in these difficult situations, do everything you can, following after the pattern of your Lord Jesus Christ at the end of First Peter chapter two, to lovingly arrange yourself under that man. What short of him asking you to sin, right? And we'll talk about that in a bit so that they might be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Ladies, I just got to tell you, um, I met a few years ago. Oh, man, I got to be careful with all my anecdotes here. But I met a man 30 years ago. I, I led a group of millionaire people, some believers, some non-believers, into a foreign country in Peru to feature the gospel Center churches who were caring for people who were poor in that area. And on the way back, he and I really hit it off. He was an older guy in his 70s by now. He says... He says, I just got to tell you my testimony. I got to tell you. I go, brother, tell me. You know, you've been telling me that you want to share your testimony with me. He says, I was 30 years, 30 years married to my wife, my current wife. He says, and 10 years ago, brother, he says, I came to know Christ. But I got to tell you, for 30 years, he says, that woman, my wife, and he started crying and just bawling. He says, I was so abusive with my speech. He says, I never hit her. Never put a uh, hand on her, but I was so emotionally abusive. I was so demeaning to her, so condescending to her Christianity. She would uh, The only times that I would ever go to church are like on special occasions, once or twice a year. He says, one year, she, she invites me. I thought she was on the verge of leaving me from what I could tell, he says, but she always lived her life before me. He says, and she takes me to church. We go to the Easter service. We sit there through the sermon. The pastor comes up to me afterward and meets me for the first time. He says, and then after, she managed to get me to go to this fellowship small group after church and we're sitting there and I'm watching these 20-something Christians talking about the Bible and just reaching out to me and all of that. He says, and I was just like stirred. He says, I can't believe I even did that. I would always turn my back on those kinds of invitations. He says, and then we went home. He says, and my wife comes into the living room. He says, and I'm sitting there. He says, and I am literally crying like a little baby. And she never sees me cry. And she gets on her knees, She says, honey, what ha- what's going on? What's going on? He says, I just got to tell you, for 30 years, I've made your life miserable. 30 years. And you have been so gracious to me. You, you followed my lead even when you didn't agree with my, with my direction. And then today I go interact with the, the people of your church. I hear your pastor. I meet your pastor. Then we, I go and I see people living out this gospel thing. He says, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. What am I telling you? that that's the situation in every case? No, right? God gives grace in every situation, brethren. But that one in a handful of other situations, maybe less extreme than that one, where a whenever I think about this text, I think about those particular testimonies of the power of witness, even for you ladies, in terms of your submission to your husbands as unto the Lord, for the glory of Christ, right? Powerful. Submission is, is... A powerful witness, submission is precious in God's sight. Look at this. As they, right, the disobedient husband from the context, whoever he is, observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Notice that, ladies, right? As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, right? What is it typically? What do you typically do or you see in, in ladies when they're walking in the flesh? How are they trying to convince their husbands who are I have not even walking in obedience to the Lord? They do it with their mouths, right? Nagging, arguing, being combative with a disposition that is bitter, right? He says they need to be able to observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your holy behavior. That you're being Christ-like, right? That's how we might summarize that from the context even. Verse 3, your adornment, ladies like to adorn themselves. And in those days, the women did it very, very um, uh, in a very showy kind of manner, right? In Ephesus, in Asia Minor, right? Where this is located as well. It says, let your adornment not be merely external. He says, don't adorn yourselves, right? He says, don't let it be merely external. Braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Verse 4, but... Here's the contrast. Let it be your adornment. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. Cultivate a heart for God. What does that look like with the imperishable quality, right? Those things, adornment and braiding the hair and all of those things, you ladies know this, right? Over time, they're pretty perishable, aren't they? Right? You ever send your wife to get um, her nails done? Eventually, ladies, you need to keep going back every other month to get your nails done, right? Those things are perishable, right? Right? He says, there's a kind of adornment, the adornment of the heart, women, ladies, that is imperishable. That is a gentle and quiet spirit. What does that talk about? Speaking about, you know, typically the opposite of that would be this. You're always stirred, right? You're stirred. You're always uh, a whirling dervish on the inside. Always harboring bitterness, Unforgiveness. That would be the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit, right? Where you're always ready to just bash your husband or tell him, let him know how you feel about things. Should you let him know how you feel about things? Yes. Husbands should listen and invite the input of their wives. But there is a state that women can be in where it's like, it's it's combative. Constant argumentation, right? Constantly going at him. That is the opposite of a gentle or meek and quiet spirit. The kind of spirit that is... That is, trusting in the Lord, which is precious, he says, in the sight of God. It's precious in the sight of God. Notice, who is the ultimate audience, ladies? It's God, right, who looks at your heart. So are you cultivating that? It's precious in God's sight to walk in loving submission. In fact, I call it the power of submission. The power and the beauty of submission. Ladies, it takes a strong woman godly christ-like woman to submit herself to uh, to a sinner you know what i'm saying amen says let's say the ladies i know that you don't want to yell that out with your husband sitting next to you but in your hearts you know it takes a strong woman stable in her emotions and knowing in her convictions and her beliefs to submit herself to a sinning a sinner saved by grace right that's why it says unto the lord because you can always follow jesus right He's flawless, blameless, perfect. That's why it's as unto the Lord. So I call it the power of submission, and a submission that is precious in God's sight. Ladies, you have one primary audience. It's not that you don't care about what your husband thinks, okay? Especially if you're saying that with a bad attitude, right? But ultimately, your one audience is God. See? It's God. Submission is personified personified. Do you think you're alone in this? Peter says, for in this way, in the cultivating of the inner heart kind of way, right? That's the context. In former times, he says, think about the history. This, you know what uh, this reminds me of? Hebrews 11. What's Hebrews 11? The hall of what? Hall of faith, right? He says, hey, you need to, and then in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, run the race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus. But then he just, that was on the heels of Hebrews 11, with the hall of faith. And all of these giants of the faith who were also sinners saved by grace, Abraham and Jacob and Moses and all these guys. He says, run the race to win, right? The hall of faith. Right here, ladies, this is the, the hall of, the hall of submission. Okay. The hall of submission for in this way, in the cultivating of the inner self and submission in the ways of submission, powerful, precious submission in former times, the holy women also, holy women also, not the fleshly women also. Right. The holy women also who hoped in their husbands, who hoped in their children, who hoped in society. Right. Cultural norms who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. How? Being submissive to their own husbands. This is a a humbling one, right? Verse 6, Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Remember that guy Abraham? Was he a pretty strong guy all the time? He was kind of like, lacked courage often, right? A little bit of a coward a couple of times. You know what I'm saying? Kind of weak. Yeah, he was a man of faith, but even that was a gift from God. And God didn't call him, by the way, leave your relatives and all of that because he was such a great guy, right? He called Abraham to leave um, idol worshiping right, to leave all of that, granted him the gift of faith, and then we see all the weaknesses of Abraham, it says that Sarah obeyed Abraham, the idea of submission, following her husband's lead, calling him Lord, notice it's not capital L-O-R-D, right, only Jesus' is boss with a big B, this is little L, which in those days was, was a respectful demeanor and disposition that she had, calling him Lord, right? And you have become her children, ladies, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. See that? You have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. What is the frightened by any fear? It's this. But if I, if I submit to him and if I follow him, he's going to take advantage of me. But if I submit to him and I follow him, it seems like he always gets his way and it's never where I want to go for vacation. You know? It seems like he, he, we always go the direction he wants to go. See, frightened by any fear, right? That's very broad. Any fear without being frightened by any fear. Why? Because your hope is in, is in who, ladies? Right? Verse 5, your hope is in God. Jesus, First Peter chapter 2, submitted himself all the way to the cross. It says, and he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Remember that passage? Same idea here. Your hope is in God and it's personified here, this submission, because there are people, persons, ladies who've come before you in this wonderful heritage and history of godly women who've come before you. They can identify with your struggles. They can identify with weaknesses in men. They can identify with these things. But it says that they obey, she obeyed Abraham and she offered him the respect that oftentimes Abraham didn't deserve, right? And that's going to happen. That's going to often happen. So much in this wonderful text. I did a series of six sermons on this text. So think about it. I'm giving you guys a synopsis in 10 minutes, right? What submission is not? What is submission not? Submission is not enslavement, ladies. Don't drink the Kool Aid of the culture around you that says that this kind of a thing is chauvinism, right? That it's bad, that it's enslavement, that it's inequality. Is that what the word of God says? Would God have given commands? He's perfect and good and kind. Would he have given commands to women, a command to submit to lovingly, voluntarily, arrange rangers of under her husband, if this is an evil thing that enslaves women? What's the answer? No. And just because there's distortions and abuse of authority and power on the part of men, right? Which they need to repent of and confess to the Lord. Just because there's a distortion of that doesn't mean that the command is a bad command. Don't ever detach God's commands from the lawgiver. Don't ever detach, uh, make a separation between, well, he couldn't have said that because of this. Or if he said that, that means this about him, right? If he's a good and holy and perfect God, then all of his commands are not burdensome, First John, but they are for our good and for his glory, yes? Regardless of the distortions. Submission is not loss of a wife's precious uniqueness. And by this, I'm talking about her beautiful, precious femininity. Those wonderful womanly aspects about her. Okay? In fact, a man who is helping his wife live out biblical submission is a man who invites the input of his precious wife, understanding that she's unique and she's precious. He's, he, she's his companion, her, his partner, his helpmate suitable, and he's going to invite the input of his wife if he's a good leader, right? You may not always do what your wife is saying, men, that you that that, that uh, to do, but you want to invite her input because you know she's for you, you know that she's equal to you, you know that she's your partner in life, you know that her femininity, right, in complementarianism, these two wonderful masculinity, femininity, working together and complementing each other, that you need that uniqueness and her feminine aspects to be able to assess right situations and make decisions in, in life. Yes? You need that. You're a bad leader if you have a, a habit of being authoritarian, dictatorial, and you never, as a pattern, seek to invite the input of your wife into things. Right? And I'm a bad leader if, 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 we're, if I do that. Submission is not, does not imply inferiority. Again, right? The culture says this. Um, equality equals sameness. Sameness. That if you're truly equal, man and woman, then you should be able to do the same things across the board all the way. Women should be out there playing with the Kansas City Chiefs, you know, because they're equal, right? Seriously, right? Or men should be having babies now. You know what I'm saying? You heard that movement? (laughs) It's like back in the 70s there were already men trying to think about that. And now some of it is, is beginning to be fleshed out in medicine and science and all of that. What in the world are we doing? You know what I'm saying? So because equality equals sameness, men should be able to have babies now because, hey, we're equal as men too to the women. We should be able to have babies. Again, the Bible teaches ontological equality, right? In being, essence, we're equal, ontological equality, but distinctive di- distinction in roles and responsibilities. Beautiful complement, right? Of each other, masculinity and biblical femininity. Submission is not limitless or absolute, Submission is not limitless or absolute. This is really, really key, men. When we go outside of the bounds of our God-given delegated authority and we impose physical abuse and pain upon our wives, you are in sin as a man, as a leader of your home. You are not using God-given authority in a way that it benefits her. You are hurting your wife. Did you hear me? And I got to tell you, authority, our authority, has its limits. And we go outside of the bounds of that. And women, ladies, if you are, are seeking to be submissive to your husband and you are seeking to live a godly life, 1 Peter 3, and your husband imposes physical physical pain upon you, guess what? We have a couple of, a couple of provisions that God has made for that. The church and government. Okay? So... Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says that your shepherds are, are soul takers, right? Your shepherds, your elders. So your elders, you should not ever keep that confidential. Confidentiality has its limits. say, so, well, I don't want to... Uh, listen to me. If God's glory and the good of that person is at stake and there's sin involved, you don't keep that from your shepherds. That is a distortion of confidentiality. Why would you do that? Why would you ever do that? You need to bring it to your shepherds. What does it mean that we care for your souls? That we know exactly what's going on in the inner recesses of people's lives and, and their, their relationships, right? So that the whole church then, the elders are going to tell the whole church. No. Confidentiality says, hey, the people who know now, know and that's it. Now we're going to deal with it head on. You know what I'm saying? Leaders. Secondly, there's the laws of the land. Romans chapter 12 right? Essentially, or Romans 13, rather, uh, with respect to the governing authorities, says that essentially the principle there, timeless principle, government is there to protect the innocent and to punish the evildoer. Why do we keep that secret? The issue of physical abuse. If you as a man go outside of your God-given delegated authority to bless your family and to be and to care for your family, then you are subject to the laws of the land and you're breaking the law by basically imposing physical pain upon your wife. You know what I'm saying? Please take this as a pastoral expression of my love and my desire to be faithful to the Word of God. Yes? So we will impose or leverage the governing authorities upon you if you physically hurt your wife. And ladies, you don't need to be in a situation like that as you now get your elders involved and we shepherd you guys. We do temporary separation in that kind of situation. We will do that. As we engage in counseling, as we engage the authorities of the land, right? there will be temporary separation because we want to protect a woman from a ki- that kind of situation. In a couple of cases over the years, i got to tell you, we even had to protect a man from that situation. The lady was coming after him and throwing things at him. You know what I mean? She chased him with a knife at one point. Managed to run faster than her out, right? She was actually like two months pregnant. Can you believe that? With a knife and two months pregnant. We had a after discerning the situation, getting clarity, asking questions and listening, we had to remove him from the situation. And in every case, we try to do everything we can to restore the marriage. Unfortunately, in some unique cases, after a lot of counseling, a lot of asking questions, a lot of engaging, brethren, obviously God has given, made two provisions, right, for, for, for divorce. And he's made those provisions because of the broken, fallen world in which we live. But from the beginning, Jesus says, it has not been this way. So we do everything we can to restore the marriage, and I can tell you amazing stories of people who in bad situations and even worse than those, actually the marriage has been restored and they're glorifying God with their marriage. There's always hope in the gospel. Amen? Amen. Submission is not limitless or absolute. Neither is authority. What's a biblical and helpful definition of submission? Running out of time. Submission is an inner attitude, ladies, of gentleness and tranquility. Instead of being a whirling dervish on the inside, you're cultivating before the Lord this attitude of gentleness and tranquility because of the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension based upon a wife's hope in God. That's your anchor. It's not whether your husband treats you well, whether he always responds the way that you want him to respond. Your anchor is your hope in God, which expresses itself, right? This attitude now expresses itself in her joyful and voluntary choice Submission is a choice, ladies. You're not helpless, right? You're not a helpless victim. Submission is a choice. Joyful, voluntary choice to respectfully affirm and submit to her husband's leadership for the glory of God. And here's the, the fact that there's limits within the biblical parameters of her obedience to Christ. So when he goes outside of the bounds of his of obedience to Jesus and he's asking you to go against something that God's word says or he's physically hurting you, that's not within the parameters of obedience to Christ, is it? So there are, there are limits. But notice, there is a call and a command for wives to arrange themselves under their husbands. This is a beautiful complementarian marriage that we're talking about that God designed, right? All right, helpmate or Helper. We're going to have to go a little faster. Where do we get this idea of helper, right? Genesis passages here. Um, The idea of I will make him a helper suitable. That is corresponding to him. Remember, this is right after Adam was given the wonderful privilege of naming all of the animals. He's seen all of these creatures go through one after the other. And I'm sure he realized himself like none of these animals fit me, right? None of these animals fit me. And God puts him to sleep. And God makes him a helper suitable, corresponding to him, his perfect, precious complement. That's what you are, ladies. You're his perfect, precious partner in life and complement. Right, men? Genesis 3.16, right? Because of the fact that she was not helping Adam, but took over, right? God calls out Eve for usurping her husband's role. She wasn't created to be the leader, but the helpmate. Genesis 3.17, to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, right? Adam had abdicated his role as leader, and he reversed her role as his helpmate and and as his perfect assistant, and she took hold of the reins, right? I'm leading this thing. And he never stopped her. He never stepped in there, right? He, from what most conservative exegetes would say, he was right there, because she immediately gives to him, and he ate, right? Abdicated his role. 1 Corinthians 11:8. 8, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. This is not chauvinistic Paul talking here to the Corinthian church. This is him stating a, a facts. right? Go back and read Genesis chapter 2. Woman was created for man. What, so as a slave? No, we've talked about that, right? And oh. given, given the, the, uh, the biblical framework for that. And his love and his studying of his wife and all of that, and the way that he exercises authority. That's not what he's saying, right? It's a statement of fact of divine order. There's a pecking order. And when we follow that pecking order and that beautiful complementary relationship in the home, God is glorified and we are both happy with each other, aren't we? When there's that beautiful spirit led relationship happening. So the timeless principle is in addition to all of her beautiful responsibilities, a wife is her husband's co equal partner and his assistant, i.e. his helpmate suitable, perfect correspondingly to him and her femininity. It's not a question of inferiority, of inequality, but again, of distinct function, role, and responsibilities. It has nothing to do with competence. Men don't ever make it, right, an issue of competence, because it isn't. There are things that my wife is much better at than I am, and I'm like, honey, you, 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 you do that, I'll, I'll, I'll stay tuned in, keep me updated, I'll oversee that, and if anything goes wrong, you know, blame me, you know? But I need you to tackle that one, because she's much better at certain things than I am, and vice versa, right? So there's, there's a complementary. The more mature your marriage is as you walk closer together in of oneness, the more that you learn in a mature, godly, Christ-like marriage to leverage your strengths for her weaknesses, and you ladies, your strengths for his weaknesses. See, immature, godless marriages, fleshly marriages, you're always blaming each other. How come you didn't do this? And how come you didn't do that, right? And I want to do that the next time. And okay, forget you then, right? Fleshly, not Christ like marriage. The more mature, it's like, honey, I'm weak in that area. I want you to know. I'm sorry. You know what? I think you're stronger in that area. Why don't you spearhead that one, okay? I'll, I'll oversee it as a spiritual leader of our home, right? Or Andrea will tell me, honey, I need you to tackle that one, okay? Like that often happened with our discipline with our kids. Right. One of my boys was being a little stinker. Right. And my wife would say when I came home, she's like, honey, I need you to take over. And a couple of times I even had to come home from work when they were little toddlers. Because I lived about a mile. I worked about a mile away from our house. So Andrea would be like, honey, I need you to come home. He needs some fatherly uh, uh, firmness right now. You know what I'm saying? And I would come home. Right. My wife would leverage my str- my masculinity, if you will. Not in terms of physical pain, but more as far as my firmness. Right. To come home and take care of business. Right. You learn to do that in the little things like that or bigger things in life. How do you come alongside and help your husband, ladies? By supporting him. Here are some ways by supporting him. Do you support your husband, right? Supporting him. What would be the opposite of supporting him? It would be being an adversary to him always resisting any direction, even if it doesn't involve sin, accentuating his weaknesses, complaining, nagging about your, you know, the things that you have going on. That would be the opposite of supporting your husband. Now you're bringing him down and you're tearing him down, right? There's a proverb that speaks of that. The foolish woman tears her home down, right? That's the Pastor Kempis Hernandez paraphrase. You tear down your home instead of supporting your husband, uplifting him, right? Like the two... Brothers who held up the, the the hand of Moses, remember, during the war? That that idea, are you supporting your husband in his role? By being a friend and companion to him, right? You're his best friend, you're his partner. Proverbs seventeen seventeen says that a friend loves at all times, even when my husband's being a stinker, yes. Even when he's discouraged, yes. Even when he's disappointed, yes. Even when he's guilt-ridden over not being a good husband and father, yes. Yes, be a friend and companion to him be loyal so that he knows short of sin being involved, right? He knows that you're for him. Ladies, does he, does he know that you're, does, does he feel that you're trustworthy? Again, not trustworthy in the sense of, oh, when I, when, so when he sins, should I keep it? No. Didn't we make that clear enough? If he's hurting you, no. What I'm talking about, you know, when in the flow of your relationship, does he know that he's got a faithful companion who's trustworthy? Do you pray for him? You pray for him. One of the scariest things, that, actually, the scariest thing that Andrea has said to me over the years, after decision making and all that, I think I've mentioned it before, is like, "Honey, I've given you what I think about that. I've given you, you know, I've I've shared my heart with you. Here's the positives, the negatives, whatever. I, I'm just going to pray for you." <sighs> you know, like, man, she's entrusting me to God now. You know, it's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to render an account to the Lord for for this decision, right? Because the buck stops with me as the leader of our home. She'll pray for me. Do you pray for your husband? Ladies, oftentimes women, wives, go to everybody else. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have that one, two core group of women that you can go to. You should have that too, right? Who are trustworthy, who love you, who know your situation. You should have that. There's discipleship in the church. But also, do you go to the Father first? You really want his heart to change? Do you go to the Father? Stop talking to everybody else and gossiping about your husband when you never even talk to God about what's going on with your husband. You don't pray specifically for him, right? The one who can actually change his heart by serving him serving him the little things the big things what are those things ask him honey what are some ways that i can come alongside of you as your wife as your helpmate suitable and i can assist you by serving you what are some of those areas where i can serve you in a greater way right what are some of those ways honey give me some practical advice by encouraging him right Encour- you ought to be your husband's greatest leader uh, greatest cheerleader ladies you ought to be his greatest cheerleader. Let me tell you, short of him being in sin or walking in the flesh, men, oftentimes, if they're seeking to do what is right, they are guilt-ridden. Men, because there's, a, there's this, in, in masculinity, there's this embedded sense of responsibility for men who are walking with Christ. We want to provide. We want to protect. We do. We want to do a good job as men. Oftentimes, when we fail, we really get down on ourselves. You know what I mean? There are guys that get really high on the highs and really low on the lows. In those moments, ladies, do you encourage him? It's like, yeah, honey, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you know, I've seen that for years. I'm glad that you are. I've been praying that God would, you know, open your eyes to that. You are kind of a filthy animal. You know what I mean? (laughs) You guys have met people in counseling sessions or maybe informally that talk like that, right? I mean, I've had women yell at their husbands in counseling meetings like that. You are like that, and I'm so glad that Pastor Kemp has finally called it out. It's like, lady, have a seat, you know? (laughs) Not an encourager, not a cheerleader, always bashing him, always saying all the negatives, right? Philippians 1 tells us that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we should always be looking for the evidences of God's grace to affirm, to commend, even when it's hard. Look for it. Pray for it. Lord, help me to see the things that my husband is doing well, so that I affirm that. Vice versa, also for us men, But your loving affection. Okay, we're going to talk next week about um, uh, marital intimacy. Okay, among some other things, but this kind of gets that direction. So I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get deep into this right now. But you know what I mean, ladies. Okay, there are women who use physical affection, whether it's just the ongoing and the flow of the marriage. Uh, hugs or kisses or whatever, who, uh, or even sexual intimacy, who use this as a weapon against their husbands, as a weapon to withhold if they're not, if, he, if he's not putting out as far as his responsibilities. You know what I mean? Women can really do that. Sometimes men do that too. Generally speaking, women do that. We'll talk about some of that next week. Your loving affection, making yourself available to him, rather than him coming and having to ask you, right? Men should be the pursuers. We'll talk about this next week, even in this area of intimacy. But how often, ladies, do you make yourself available to your husbands, right? And put his needs before your own. We'll talk about some of these things. By honoring and affirming his leadership, right? And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, Ephesians 5.33. Um, Do you honor and affirm his leadership, even with the kids? Oftentimes I've seen this in counseling where the wife is just totally... um, um, speaking condescendingly or undercutting her husband's leadership with the kids, young and older, right? And then I see it in the counseling sessions where all the whole family is in there. And then the kids are like, well, mama said. It's like, and he's like, you did? You said that? So I I basically asked him not to do that. And you still said that he could do that? And you see the undermining of the husband's leadership? Ladies, do you affirm your husband's leadership in the lives of your kids? What about in decision making? What if you have a husband who says, honey, what what do you think about this? Well, here's what I think, honey. And then you can say, ladies, honey, but ultimately you're responsible before the Lord for that decision. Okay. So I want to know, I want you to know that I trust you. I defer to you. Unless we're violating something in scripture, we sought the counsel of other older mentors. Right. Um, I trust you. I want to follow your lead, honey. What do we need for these things, brethren? Grace, don't we? These are hard things. I know. But these are such countercultural things because Satan doesn't want us to be fleshing out our our God-given responsibilities. And ready for this? Glorify God in doing that and actually make one another happy, right? One time they asked Pastor MacArthur. um, uh, We're going to cover this one next week. But one time they asked Pastor MacArthur, some young guy says, Pastor MacArthur, what is the key to a great marriage? You know, he'd been been married already 40 plus years. Give us the key in this Q&A. And you know what he says? He says, I'll tell you. He says, I just want to make Patricia my wife more than anything. I just want to make her happy. That's my goal, right? Putting in perspective, obviously God's glory, but God's glory as he just makes his wife happy. And I thought, wow, that's a great goal, isn't it? Within biblical parameters, right? Biblically define what happiness means and signifies. I think that's a great goal. God has designed roles and responsibilities for us as husbands and wives so that we would make each other happy, yes, within sanctified biblical parameters. And the ultimate goal is his glory. We do it as unto the Lord because we're going to fall short with one another in our interactions. We want to make sure that we glorify him by fulfilling these beautiful things. Amen? Uh, All right. We'll cover, uh, we'll be in our last session next week, so we'll finish the role of the wife as a lover of her husband, and then we're going to get into... Um, marital intimacy a bit with some principles in that. And so hopefully this will be helpful to you as we think about next week. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for the wonderful beauty and clarity of your word. We pray that you would help us by your spirit and by your grace to apply ourselves to these truths that we might glorify you and, yes, be a source of happiness in the lives of one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.